It's 11 minutes before 8 p.m. You tuned in to Metro FM Talk here on the My Team Metro. We go into our wrap of the top business stories, taking a look at the big stories in the world of money and power. And as well, Akim Guni, Chief Investment Officer at Benguela Global Fund Managers, is my guest. Kwabe, good evening to you and welcome. Zolake? Okay, we seem to be having a bit of a challenge there with Zuelake. Uh, so uh, let's maybe take this brief break while we try and re-establish our connection with Zuelake Mguni from Benguela Global Fund Managers for our business wrap. Kwabe, I certainly hope we have you on a much better line. Good evening. Certainly. Uh, good evening, uh, Aya. Good evening to your listeners. Yes, yes, yes. That sounds a lot better, man. Thank you so much for taking time to speak to us this evening. Kwabe, I want us to start off at African Bank. Uh, now, uh, the uh, unexpected exit of uh, Basani Maluleka certainly caught many by surprise a few weeks ago. But, uh, yeah, I wouldn't have expected uh, them to replace her so soon. Uh, seasoned financial services veteran Kennedy Pungane, and now the new CEO. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, like you say, I mean, I, I was also quite uh, surprised by Basani's exit, but it looks like they they were able to secure Kennedy's uh, services. Mm. Uh, Kennedy's quite a well-experienced guy. I mean, uh, when, when I started in the industry in 2001, he was already in banking. So wow. uh, I, I think he's quite a, an experienced uh, person in the industry. Mm, mm. But talk to me, I guess, about the kind of African bank he's going to be joining, um, not only just in its own competitive environment alongside other players, but also, uh, I guess, uh, shifting and changing customer base and uh, what even some might suggest is a shifting product mix as well? Yeah, I, I think the big thing for him is probably going to be to ensure that uh, he lowers the cost of funding. I mean, it's one of the big things uh, if you have taken note of the adverts. Mm. They tend to be advertising a lot higher rates than uh, their competitors and that basically crimps up their uh, uh, profit margin, their net interest margin. Yeah. Uh, or otherwise forces them to actually set their pricing or the interest rate a lot higher mm. than their competitors. And and that can have a certain dynamic in, in terms of uh, uh, customer acquisition. Mm. So mm. you probably get, end up with customers that are extremely desperate and that increases your, your risk of uh, yeah, bad debt. Yeah. So I can maybe unpack that for us a lot more. I mean, just the wholesale side of funding because many of us might be familiar with just, you know, the last mile, last leg retail part of you know, transactional banking. But, uh, you know, some might be asking, you know, uh, how do the terms on which the banks themselves get the money influence who they lend to? Yeah, so so basically the banks, uh, the main source of uh, uh, funding for the banks is generally their deposits. So you put money in a lazy account, they mm. basically take that money, they run algorithms to see what is the probability of you demanding that money anytime soon? Because uh, if they can take that money and lend it to somebody for a slightly longer period, they would be able to get uh, a, a higher higher interest on that. Mm. So that is the first thing. The second thing is then they would then go and raise capital in the bond market, for example, or through preference shares to basically uh, augment what uh, has been supplied through deposits. And the the big thing is that as they move up the curve, so if you go into a fixed deposit, for example, uh, they would basically pay a higher rate compared to a lazy deposit in a, a in a transactional account. Mm. And as they move up that curve, 
of uh, tenure of of the deposit, they basically have to pay up for that. So the risk is then that you end up paying a high rate because you don't have the the cheap deposit. You have people who are who say pay me up, and you end up paying a high deposit rate. The flip side of that is that to make your margin, or at least to make the same margin as a capital, for example, you're mm. probably going to have to price it a bit more aggressively because Capitec has got a transactional banking side that enables them to get those lazy deposits. And then you turn around, then uh, you realize that the cost of the, the, the funding cost becomes uh, very high for your customers. And you end up with customers who are quite desperate. So the, the good customers would probably run to where they can get the cheapest funding, mm. the cheapest uh, cost of funding. So when customers become that desperate, and take any rate, there is a probability that you might be actually booking some of the uh, low-quality customers in your books, and that has an impact on your bad debts uh, going forward. Mm, mm. Thank you very much for for that lesson, because I think, you know, many of us just take it for granted that uh, all of these banks you know, uh, on lend from the same pot of money. But uh, I guess for African Bank, which uh, uh, prior to its collapse, I think a few years ago, wasn't even offering deposit products. So it certainly didn't have the ability to diversify its funding mix in that kind of way. Uh, this, uh, I must say, is, I guess, rather insignificant, its operating model now when we compare it to what it used to do. Uh, yeah. But uh, as well, I can let's shift to Mozambique. I mean... Uh, yeah, I guess some interesting news coming out of there, if it's not the uh, you know issues around terror and the geopolitics of it. But now it seems uh, the uh, Mozambique and Metikash is uh, on a surge. Uh, why is this happening? It has been on a surge since, uh, um, I think, the beginning of the year when we saw uh, some of the... I mean, Mozambique is a major exporter of coal, mm. and they, they we've seen the ramp-up of uh, production... Uh, of of coal and, and and it's mainly for the export market. So they've been able to actually generate some um, uh, foreign currency, and in simple terms, basically they sell coal in dollars, and then they get they then have to sell dollars in Mozambique to buy the medical, uh, and basically that is, that creates demand for the medical, and the currency becomes stronger. And I think. We saw a uh, gem fields as well, which uh, is a diamond miner, basically also announcing that they've had uh, quite a good quarter. So all that currency comes in, you sell the foreign currency, you buy mm. the local currency, and that enables the currency to strengthen quite a lot. But I think the, the economy had been uh, on the mend uh, quite nicely. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I guess, you know, a lot of that uh, still going to be influenced uh, to a considerable extent uh, by, I guess, the unfolding of that terror situation and how it's contained uh, in the northern uh, parts of that country. Um, I mean, what influence, if at all, does that have on capital markets and in particular uh, in, in the case of what we're talking about, uh, you know, uh, the uh, currency markets as well? Yeah, I, I think the most significant component is that it would limit the amount of uh, foreign uh, investment. Uh, I think we know that uh, Total has been uh, busy setting up a, a gas export plant in, in, in the north of Mozambique. Mm. And I think if there is uncertainty, they would stop uh, selling their uh, currency, the, the, the euro, for example, to buy the medica to invest on the ground in the country. And 
that would then uh, create less demand for the currency that may weaken the currency mm. in the short term so so all else being equal that that kind of uh, violence or uh, uh, instability that we saw in the north in in, in Parma in particular can actually create a foreign currency risk because there there would be no demand or at least investors who want to invest in that uh, country. Mm, mm. And and it's, it's it's quite interesting. I mean, I guess you know, aside from what you've been talking about, which is the coal and uh, some of the commodity exports. Uh, there's the question marks around what implications for the structure of the Mozambican economy will the development of some of those gas resources mean? I mean, you know, people often talk about the resource curse, uh, and you see this in many countries that are, you know, Angola, Nigeria, where effectively, you know, the advent of the discovery of oil effectively, you know, decimates many secondary industries in that economy and effectively gives a structure. Uh, to that economy that is heavily reliant on those exports, but also uh, whose ex- currency is um, always, I guess, vulnerable to whatever price movements there are in those commodities. Will Indeed, we see something if you, similar here? If you look at the uh, African stock markets, you look at the currencies, they're quite heavily correlated to uh, the, the commodity prices. So mm. I mean, that just tells you something that is actually a disappointment from a political perspective that there hasn't been reforms in in most African countries to basically beneficiate the raw materials. And as a result of that, they export the raw materials. I mean, mm. Why are we uh, not the biggest auto catalyst producer in the world uh, as one of the biggest producers of platinum yeah, or, or PGMs? Yeah. Uh, again, that, that that is the issue. And the same thing applies would apply to Mozambique that you end up being highly dependent on um, uh, commodities. There is no structural reforms that uh, that are being put in place to basically make the economy less dependent on commodities. And if I may make a, a, an extreme example, if you look at the Saudi Arabia, Dubai, all those countries are now investing a lot of money towards the next wave of uh, uh, drivers of the economy, they're looking at renewable energy, uh, basically trying to hedge their bets against, for example, uh, the decline in uh, uh, fossil fuel usage in, in internal combustion engines. So uh, I think that is the case that that, that is happening, is that uh, our commodities are exported raw and we end up with uh, uh, being highly dependent on other countries to basically uh, for our own survival. Mm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's certainly one that uh, is going to have to be watched closely. But uh, I guess well, like the, the, the flip side of the question is, what are the alternatives outside of... I mean, if we can see that that is the outcome for many countries that have followed the, the gas path or the oil path uh, prior to Mozambique and its own discoveries, and even here in South Africa, if I can add. Um, you know, how do we avoid that outcome? How do we avoid this outcome of what many have called a mono-economy, an economy solely focused just, you know, on a specific primary sector alongside, of course, agriculture, but very little by way of secondary and, uh, in some cases, tertiary industry as well? Aya, there are two ways that uh, the politicians could approach this thing. There are, there's an approach where basically the guys say we're not selling any raw material, uh, and, and I would call it a, a bit more aggressive approach, basically to say, we don't sell anything raw out of our country. Basically, it must be uh, converted. Mm. The, the second approach, 
which I find that uh, it, it's not well utilized in countries like uh, South Africa, is the approach of giving incentives. So, for example... So incentives for what? Beneficiation? Y- yeah. Okay. So, 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 so basically, if South Africa said to the producers of um, uh, auto catalysts that are used in, in vehicles, uh, said to them, we, you can come to South Africa, you don't pay tax for 20 years, uh, because... As you sell your product, you'll pay VAT. As you export the product, you'll, there'll be uh, duties on the on the product if there are any duties, and there'll be employment that would then drive consumption, which is the biggest component of the economy. Mm. A- a- and essentially, if you give incentives to say, come and set up here in, in South Africa, that'd be an opportunity. I'll give you an example. So when MTN went into Nigeria, Nigeria gave them seven years without paying any tax, and mm. they said. Whatever investment you make, write it off against your future income. So wow. I think that the period was about 11 years in the end. And if you look at the amount of money that MTN has invested in Nigeria compared to South Africa, it's chalk and cheese. Mm. And, and that, yeah, that, but also, that's I mean, how do you compare it, Zolaka? Uh, because, I mean, you've got a, a market three times the size uh, of what we have here. So, I mean, you would expect that they would invest there more or not? Agreed. But but if you, even if you look at the uh, subscriber, the amount of money that he put oh, in, sure, sure, probably sure. Okay. W- would be a, a lot more uh, than what they did here. Because I think the, the the point I was making is that the the amount of money in total that uh, MTN has invested in Nigeria, mm. uh, uh, if 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 we ignore the issues like the number of subscribers, uh, I think it is substantial. And one of the things that enabled that confidence in MTN was the fact that there were incentives that were given to them in the early in the beginning so i do think that i mean the, those two approaches i'll probably say the incentive model hasn't been explored uh, adequately for example in mm. in, in the sarek region mm. and you know even whenever we talk about these mining charters we seldom even, I guess, embed that component to say, look, if you're a major platinum producer, you're sitting on cash, you've been buying back shares, you've been paying generous dividends. You know, how do we give you at least a, a carrot to attract you to at least, you know, invest in downstream capability or even alternative uses for what you're producing? You know, because some companies invest in R&D for that to say you want to secure uh, some kind of market, even if, you know, things uh, fizzle out in some of your main markets as well. So, yeah, something to think about there. Well, I kept talking about that. What's the story now that uh, there might be a reorientation of where some of our SOEs sit? So SAA might go to transport, ESCOM might go to energy, and uh, I don't know, what does this mean for the DPE? Does it become the Department of Privatization again? <laughs> uh, I, I actually question the wisdom in actually uh, moving those businesses uh, out of uh, a central point where it was uh, the, the, the public enterprises. And the reason being that if you take them and put them in the ministries, for example, if you take ESCOM into minerals and energy, how does the minerals and energy legislate? Uh, would it legislate in favor of its own operating company? Are mm. they going to delay things? Uh, so, so there's a bit of conflict of interest in, the, in there because you are basically a regulator, but you're also an operator within the sector. How does that uh, work out? I think, I mean, uh, if it goes that route, it 
probably be unfortunate because what we would lose is that the the kind of reforms I mean, uh, we, we know in the energy sector there's a need to move towards uh, uh, renewable mm. energy. But I think Minister Mantashi has been saying that you know the the coal burning coal is still a viable option. So there might be a conflict in that in in reforming that. But one one thing that I would probably say that may be a, a bit controversial is that we are also falling prey from a political point of view of uh, being forced to fast track our move to renewable energies. And uh, the countries that actually polluted the most, uh, like the U.S., they build their economies on huge pollution. They're turning around and saying, you know, let's all cut emissions. There is no sense of we we actually didn't get the full benefit, the dividend of that pollution. They must mm. be the ones that are cutting a lot more. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be moving to renewable energies, but I'm also saying that we actually need to be conscious that the other countries that are now dictating the terms for us, mm. that we, we must actually cut back, have actually built their economies on pollution. The ozone exactly. is damaged because yeah. they did. Mm. Mm. So also the space and the scale of our transition to renewables as well, like I think is the important point that you're making, which is, you know, it's all good and well, but you, you don't just shut down entire cities like Vidbank, for instance, overnight, uh, because you need to have a transition that is just in that whose costs and benefits are equitably shared across all stakeholders. Absolutely. So so I, I do appreciate the fact that maybe the the intention to move the companies into the ministries, mm. there is a bit of conflict of interest there, uh, and I don't know how it would be managed because you're probably going to get uh, a situation like we had with telecoms many years ago where mm. people were taking telecom to say they're abusing their uh, market position uh, in, in terms of providing fiber to, to the rest of the telecommunications yeah, yeah. sector. Last one here before I let you go. Uh, Central Bank Governor, Lesetja Khanyaho, uh, I guess, uh, I don't know how to say this, uh, striking a very accommodative tone uh, in relation to the story about where interest rates are going to go. I think the quarterly projection model of the uh, Reserve Bank, um, I guess, has penciled in maybe, you know, two rate hikes this year. But um, I guess with where inflationary expectations are on the part of price setters, uh, highly unlikely that we might see that. And I, I think, you know, Khanyakho's remarks here probably uh, give credence to that. Yeah, I, I certainly think that uh, one of the key drivers of that uh, uh, muted uh, inflation outlook is the strengthening uh, rent. So we, we import one of the key drivers of inflation is uh, the price of crude in rent. So that, that feeds into the economy. So I, I do think that him saying that is also in anticipation that the, the rent strengthening would probably be supportive of uh, uh, lower inflation relative to the target. So I certainly think it, it is a wise move. I think it, it is a needed move given how badly our economy was affected by uh, COVID-19. Kwabe, we'll have to leave it there, my brother. It's always a pleasure catching up with you. And uh, once again, thank you for... For the free education. By the way, Zwalaki, you said you started in the financial services sector in 2001, eh? Yes. Two decades now, Papa. <laughs> I await the invite. I await the invite to the soiree. Thank you very much. <laughs>
Thank you. <laughs> that there was Zolakim Gudi, uh, Chief Investment Officer and Co-Founder at Benguela Global Fund, manages a seasoned financial services veteran in his own right. 20 years now. 20 years up. Uh, we'll, uh, yeah, certainly leave it there. I will await uh, from, uh, uh, I guess, Kwabe. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, that uh, invite uh, for the soiree that celebrates his two decades in the industry.